Uh, let me read the passage that I want to focus on. We're talking about the temple and the various uh, pieces of furniture in the temple. So I want to read two passages of Scripture from Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5, where the author says, They offer worship, that is to say, those in the Old Testament offer worship in a sanctuary that is a sketch and a shadow, a sketch and a shadow of the heavenly one. For Moses, when he was about to erect the tent, was warned. He was warned. Okay, that he had to get the details right. See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Why? Because this is going to be a sketch and a shadow of the reality. And so the author here is telling us, I, I don't think it's good just to go off in blind alleys and trying to find numerical significance and typological significance and everything in the Old Testament. But in the case of the Old Testament tent, that tabernacle that they had in the wilderness, the author tells us specifically that Moses was inspired to do it in according to a certain detail because it does have typological significance. It's a type of what is to come. So we're going to be looking at some of the things in the tent, the Old Testament tent, to look at what significance it has for us today. What is the reality to which that points? Second passage, and this is the furniture I want to talk about here this morning, briefly, uh, is in chapter 9, starting with verse 3. Behind the second curtain was a tent called the Holy of Holies. We talked about that last week. In it stood the golden altar of incense. That always stands for worship and praise and, and, and the, the presence of God. Okay, so there's this incense there. Um, in it stood the, stood the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant. There's so much mystery surrounding this Ark in the Old Testament. So much legend ever since then, too. You know, Raiders of the Lost Ark and whatever. But this is an awesome piece of furniture we're talking about here. In, the, in, the, in it stood the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant order, overlaid on all sides with gold, which usually symbolizes divinity, purity, in which there was a golden urn holding the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Three things there. Above it were the cherubim of glory. Most scholars uh, hold that. Uh, the term glory there is a divine attribute as it's uh, they used to refer to the glory of God and, uh, or something being uh, of God's glory and refer to an aspect of God himself. So a lot of scholars believe that these cherubim were not symbols of angels, but rather of God's own presence. And I think that that's true for reasons I'll get into shortly. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat of these things we cannot speak now in detail. He couldn't, but I can. So here we're going to speak about them in detail. I want to talk a little bit here. We've got 15 minutes to explore the most profound mystery of the Bible. And it's, it's, it's dense, but it's... Last week laid the groundwork for it, and I want to really get into it here this morning. It'll be a stretch for some of you, especially those who have problems with the doctrine of the Trinity, because it has to do with the Trinity. Here's, here's the thing. You can usually tell that God's Word... You can tell that something is of divine revelation because it will go beyond your natural reasoning capacities in certain respects. If something totally makes total sense to you without paradoxes, it was probably created by a human being. If something comes from God, there will at least be times when it's going to transcend your ability to put it into a coherent whole. Not that it's contradictory, because contradictions are meaningless, but it can be paradoxical. That shouldn't surprise us, because most of life is that way. The more we learn about life, the more we learn that we don't know much about life. Take the, most fu two, mo the two most fundamental metaphysical dimensions of reality, time and space. 
Somebody explain to me whether or not time began. Conceive for a moment of time beginning. All right, got it? What happened one second before then? Uh, must have began a little earlier then. Okay, what happened one second before that? Oh, okay, well then it, it began before that. You can conceive of a beginning to time. All right then, conceive of it not beginning. Good luck. Both alternatives, now it either began or didn't begin, but neither alternative is conceivable. It just outruns our capacity to think. Space is the same way. Someone think about space having an end. I mean, if you go all the way out there, do you ever come to the end? Let's go out to the edge of the universe. Conceive of space coming to an end. Well, what happens one inch beyond space where space comes to an end? You can't conceive of it. Okay, then conceive of space not ending. You can't conceive of that either. So time, whether it began or not, and space, whether it ends or not, is utterly inconceivable. Yet we're very sure that there is time and space. If you're not sure about that, I've got some counselors you need to talk to. There is time and space. But the two most basic things that characterize reality, we can't even begin to make sense out of. Now, if we can't make really clear sense out of that, we should not be surprised if there are aspects of God that transcend our ability to make total, coherent, rationalistic, intelligible sense out of. And the doctrine of the Trinity is just about that. Here's the paradox. The Bible tells us many, many times that there's one God. There's only one God. Are there two gods? No. Are there three gods? No. There's only one God. Got that? Over 600 times the Bible tells us, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God. At the same time, we find the Father being called God. He's He's, he's everywhere throughout the Bible, especially in the New Testament, portrayed as being God. We also, however, find Jesus Christ, the Son of God, being depicted as God. There's one God, He's the Father. There's one God, He's the Son. The Bible says in John chapter 1, verse 1, that the Word was with God. Okay, God, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's God. In John 20, 28, Thomas calls Him, My, my Lord and my God. He says that to Jesus. Jesus doesn't say, well, wait a minute, you're getting a little carried away here. I'm up there, but I'm not quite God. He doesn't do that. He says, blessed are you, for you have seen and believed, but blessed are those who haven't seen and yet still believe. My Lord and my God. Romans 9, 5, he's called God over all, blessed forever, amen. Titus 2, 13, he's called our great God and Savior, and on and on and on. He's worshipped as God. People bow down before him and worship him. In the Bible, whenever an angel was worshipped, the angel freaked out. and said, don't do it, don't do it. Jesus never freaked out. He said, do it, do it, do it, because he deserves it, because he's God. So the Father is God, the Son is God, and we find the Holy Spirit being portrayed as God. There's one God, he's Father, there's one God, he's Son, there's one God, and he's Holy Spirit. In, uh, in Acts chapter 5, Peter equates sinning against the Holy Spirit as sinning against God. And in John chapters 14 through 16, we find the Holy Spirit coming from God and doing the work of God and being portrayed in divine terms and so on. The truth of Revelation... It's like the truth of time. It's like the truth of space. You can't quite put it all together, but we do know that it's true. And that's that there's one God who exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's because of this that the, the Christian understanding of God is the one view, the one monotheistic view on the planet that can say that God is within himself throughout eternity perfect love. Love is not possible unless there's some kind of interpersonal relationship. And if you don't believe in something like the triune God, you have to say that God created the world to have some kind of interpersonal fellowship. So God is not within himself throughout eternity perfect love. He becomes loving, perhaps, when he creates the world. But the Christian view of God, because you affirm that there are three persons and one God, 
can affirm that there's interpersonal love within the Godhead. The Bible teaching then is that there is throughout eternity in God this perfect, unsurpassable, unconditional, euphoric, unlimited love that God is. That's who he is. God created the world not to get love, but God created the world to express the love that he is. He decided to, as it were, expand that. In the same way that parents, if they're healthy, don't have children in order to try to save a marriage and get love. No, but it's out of the love that is already there that they create a child. And they create that child then to share in that love, to, as it were, create an opening in the love relationship between a husband and a wife to now let that child participate in their love. That's what God does with the world. He creates the world out of love. He wants to pour his love on the world and to the world and in the world. And his hope, his goal, his aspiration is that the world will reciprocate and now become part of God's own triune fellowship. You see it all summarized in John chapter 17 when the Lord prays this prayer. He says, Father, I pray that they may be one in us even as we are one. What God is looking at is an infinitely intense love relationship between himself and the world that participates in the love relationship that he himself is. And it's a beautiful, beautiful, profound, mysterious truth. Sometimes people have trouble accepting it. They say, well, isn't that three gods? Aren't you believing in three gods? I, I debated a Muslim uh, a number of years ago at the University of Minnesota. And he was saying, you know, it was on the, on the Trinity, and the Mo Muslims don't believe in the Trinity. And he was saying, it's tritheism to believe. That, that's a belief in three gods. Tritheism to believe that there's any sort of interpersonal love relationship within the Godhead. And so I asked him, I said, uh, okay, I'm just curious. If you, if, 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 let's just suppose. Well, let me ask you, do you think that God could, Allah, could, if he wanted to, exist in three personally distinct ways, if he chose to. Could Allah do that? He goes, Allah can do everything. So I said, so you mean Allah could exist in three personally distinct ways at the same time, if he wanted to? He goes, of course he could. And then I asked him, well, would, that be, would Allah have made himself into three gods, if he chose to do that? He goes, no. Then why do you say that, it, you, that we believe in three gods? Because we believe that God, throughout eternity, has existed in just that way. It's one God existing in three different ways. We have been examining, now, this all ties into what I'm going to be talking about here, about the, about the Ark of the Covenant. We've been examining the tent of the Old Testament, and we've seen how it symbolizes in the Old Testament, it points to a reality, and the reality is that God wants to dwell with his people and wants his people to dwell in him. This tabernacle in the Old Testament was a foreshadow of the incarnation when God became a man in the person of Jesus Christ. For the Bible tells us in John 1, 14 through 18 that God tabernacled with us. So God becomes one of us. He's with us. But it also foreshadows our own bodies because we are temples of the Holy Spirit, the Bible says, as God and the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in us. It also is foreshadowed in the reality of the church because God dwells between us in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. So the church is called the temple of God. But most importantly, it points to the reality in God's own being, the holy of holies in God's own being, where God now, as we said last week, invites us in to his own inner self. God doesn't want to just dwell among us, and he doesn't want to just dwell in us, and he doesn't want to just dwell between us. He wants us to dwell in him. And that is to say, he wants his relationship with us to mirror his relationship with himself. A perfect, mutual, indwelling, totally sold out, surrendered, abandoned, loving, passionate relationship between us and him, because God is that throughout eternity. He mirrors outwardly what is true inwardly. In fact, we all do it in all of our life. This becomes, I think, profound when we look at the Ark of the Covenant. 
Many things about that Ark of the Covenant, I believe, point towards... Now, remember, the Lord gave him details. There's significance here. In, in, in the details of, of what went on in making that Ark and, and what the Ark was and the mercy seat that was upon that Ark. In the Holy of Holies, there was this Ark of the Covenant, and on top of the Ark of the Covenant was the mercy seat. And there's profound truth, revelatory truth there about the triune God, I believe, in that. There's threes all over the place, and I don't think it's coincidental. The dimensions of the Ark of the Covenant, the surface of it was two and, a, two and a half cubic feet by one and a half cubic feet. No, two by one and a half cubic feet. No, not cubic feet. A cube is not a foot. What, basically feet, but a little more. They had measured things in cubes, cubits. So it was two cubits by one and a half cubits, which means that the total dimension was three cubits. The dimensions of the mercy seat were exactly the same, three cubits. And many scholars, Bible scholars, believe that that was on purpose, because the author says it was on purpose, and it denotes the being of God. When they would carry the Ark of the Covenant anywhere, and they'd often carry it into battle because the power, it was, that was the locus of God's power to their thinking in the Old Testament, they would have to cover it with three individual cloths. Three distinctly made cloths. And the Bible never tells us why, but the fact that there was three is significant. Inside of the Ark of the Covenant was placed three things. Count them. Three, not four, not two, three. Three things. That can't be coincidental. You had there the tablets of the law. You had there, first of all, you had the tablets of the law. Then you had the, the urn in which the manna from heaven was, was to be placed. Okay? Tablets of the law, the bread of heaven. And then you had uh, uh, Aaron's staff that budded. Now that goes back to a story in Numbers chapter 17 when the Lord was, uh, was, was showing the Israelites on whom is his anointing going to be placed. He said, lay down, have all the leaders lay down their staffs. And the one that buds will be the one on whom I've placed my anointing. Aaron's staff budded. Ironically, incidentally, coincidentally, I'm sure, with three things. There was a bud, there was a flower on the bud, and there was this almond that was inside of it. And I don't even want to start to pick that apart. But it's just, the threeness is everywhere. God said, put those three things in the Ark of the Covenant. Many scholars believe, I think it's right, that the law represents God the Father from whom all authority comes. Jesus Christ is represented by the bread, the one whom we eat in order to sustain life. The bread that fell from heaven as we go through the wilderness. It has a heavenly origin, but it has an earthly quality so earthly people can eat it. Jesus Christ is both God and man. He says in John chapter 6, I am the bread of heaven, the manna of God that has come down from heaven. So it symbolizes Jesus Christ. And it's also, the, the budding staff symbolizes the life-giving spirit. The spirit works upon dead wood to bring life out of dead wood. And all of this, even the order of things is significant. Because Jesus Christ, the bread, is sandwiched between the, the moral authority of the Father and the life-giving spirit. Meaning this, if you're going to have, uh, be producing life, if you're going to have life, you need Jesus Christ to mediate your relationship with the Father. There's points, there, there, there's significance to all of this. But the most beautiful significance, I believe, is found in this mercy seat that laid this three-cubit, this, this three three-square-cubit mercy seat that, lay, that laid on top of the Ark of the Covenant. It was, the Lord instructed Moses very particularly, to be made of solid gold. The Lord instructed very specifically in Exodus 25, it had to be one piece of gold. This mercy seat, on both sides of the mercy seat, as the author in Hebrews 9 confirms, there were these cherub, a cherub on each side. 
it denotes an otherworldly quality. Not necessarily angels, but an otherworldly quality. The fact that the author calls them the cherub of glory leads many scholars, most scholars, evangelical scholars, to believe that it, it, it represents the glory of God, the very being of God. So you have a cherub on one side, and a cherub on the other side, and the mercy seat down below. And the Lord said that the cherub are supposed to be so far apart from one another, but they're very close. They're to be facing one another. The wings are outstretched, and, and they're, they're overshadowing the mercy seat. And they're looking down on the mercy seat. So as as you view this, you get a cyclical kind of a feeling. And all of that had to be made with unbroken gold. It It was one gold piece. It was one thing. The Lord was very specific. I don't want the cherub to put on the mercy seat as a secondary thing. Make one piece of gold and you fashion this whole thing out of one piece of gold. So what you have here is one thing, the gold, representing pure divinity. But there's three different manifestations of it. And that can't be coincidental. You have the Father and the Son and the Spirit, and and the Spirit and the Father are looking down on the mercy seat. One gold with three different aspects to it. And it's centered on the mercy seat. Uh, to, To get at this, to bring out the significance of this, I want us to consider, I mean, here's the bottom line of the whole thing. It shows us that the work of redemption is a work of the whole Godhead. It wasn't like one aspect of God became a man and Jesus just did a heroic act of salvation as he came down here to save the world. That would have been wonderful and great and we'd still have plenty of reason to to sing. But to grasp the full power and significance and profound love of redemption, we need to look at it as it's portrayed on the mercy seat, which sits on top of the Ark of the Covenant, which overshadows the three things representing the Godhead inside the Ark of the Covenant. Consider the work of redemption from each perspective of the, uh, of the Godhead. The Father, God the Father. What was going on with him as the work of redemption was being planned and was taking place? I would, and any decent parent would, trade anything, sacrifice anything, if it was what had to be sacrificed to avoid sacrificing my own child. There is nothing, and there is nothing that could take priority over that. God wired us that way. If we're healthy, we think that way. Received a letter from a, a, a woman last week who was just responding to the message last week. And by the way, I love your letters, especially the ones that are positive. Um, I, and I, I, I hardly ever get a chance to answer them, but I just want to say you know, kind of a blanket thing. I really appreciate it. It just lets me, I, it just, it lets me know that God's doing stuff. Uh, but she was saying this, how the message, uh, the whole thing about redemption last week just hit her between the eyes because for the first time she thought this thought. She knows that she's an imperfect mother and her son's an imperfect son and their love is, is an imperfect love. Still, having said that, she would die for her son in an instant. She'd probably die for anyone else in an instant, but she would never sacrifice her son in an instant. In fact, she doesn't know how, if she could ever, under any circumstances, be led to do that. It shows the profoundness of a parental kind of love. And what the Bible tells us is that there's something like that, but infinitely more intense, that goes on in the heart of God in the work of redemption. When we talk about the Father and the Son, we are talking about the perfect example of which our parental love is simply an approximation. There's a, the Father is a perfect Father. The Son of God is a perfect Son. And the love that flows from the Father to the Son is a perfect love. And the love that flows back from the Son to the Father is a perfect love. And that union, is, as, as the church has earlier said, is the love and the binding of the Holy Spirit. There is that there, and it is perfect. 
And yet we read in John that God so loved the world that he was willing to give his only begotten son. The one thing that would be the most precious thing we can possibly imagine, give anything, sell all of heaven if you have to, sacrifice any archangel, even doing a heroic act yourself would be easy in comparison to this, sacrificing your own son. And what it tells us is something about the heart of God and his profound love for us. He was willing to give the most precious thing that we can possibly conceive of as he sacrifices his own son. And then consider this on top of it. Not only did he allow the son to be sacrificed, but he was the one who was going to do the sacrificing. What if his mother not only had to allow her son to be killed, but she had to do the killing? Think, enter into for a moment, how difficult, how painful, how excruciating that would be. But the Bible tells us that what, what Jesus Christ went through was God the Father's own doing. It says in Isaiah 53 that he smote the suffering servant. He punished the, the suffering servant. He bruised the suffering servant. In the Old Testament, they used to put the offerings up on the mercy seat. The Shekinah glory, the dreadful power of God would come down and consume in a moment that sacrifice. That's what God the Father did on His Son, Jesus Christ. For on Him was put, the Bible tells us, all the sin of the world. In fact, the Bible says God made Him to be sin. Who knew no sin? He was made to be our sin. All the sin, the degradation, the pain, the suffering, the diabolical stuff that's ever gone on in world history, it all in a moment was placed upon Jesus Christ, and it was judged as such. It was condemned as such. It was made into hell as such. And it was the Father doing it to his own perfect Son. And there's only one reason, only one reason he did that. That's because he has this crazy love for you. And this crazy love for me. And this is what it would take for him to have fellowship with us. Consider it from the Father's perspective. Consider it from the Son's perspective. You know, Jesus sweat drops of blood in the garden. Just in, enter into the intensity of, 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 his, of his anguish there. He, suffered, he, he sweat drops of blood. And he said, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Is there another way? And the answer was, there was not. And it wasn't, I don't believe, primarily because of the physical suffering that he was going to endure. That was, I think, the least of his terror. Far more profound is the suffering that he would endure at a spiritual level when he goes to Calvary. Pain, enter into this, pain is, pain occurs when something that is against our nature happens to us. Let someone hold, put, put their, mouth, their hand over your mouth and hold your breath for a minute. Your body starts to go into a state of shock because it's natural for you to breathe. And when you're prevented from breathing, you, that's painful. That is terrifying. You, it's, just, it's against nature. Any kind of torture happens when what is against nature is, is done to you. You're subjected to heat or cold that your body was never to be, is meant to be subjected to. Pain happens when something opposite your nature happens to you. And now here Jesus Christ is in the Garden of Gethsemane contemplating what's going to happen to him. Sin. He's all holy. He's been holy from all eternity. It is his innermost nature. He knows what perfect holiness is, and he also knows the repulsive, degradating nature of sin. And now he's going to have that sin be placed upon him. In fact, he's going to become that sin. And not just this sin or that sin, but all sin. He's contemplating that. If breathing is natural to us, being holy is natural to Jesus Christ, and on the cross, he's got to hold his breath. The opposite's going to happen to him. But even worse than that, 
He knows that he will have to be judged and condemned and smitten by the Father. The Father in all of his holiness, in all the omnipotent power of heaven is going to have to come down and be directed against the Son. The infinite intensity of the love that the Father has for the Son is going to be turned into an infinite wrath as everything that was ever opposing God would now have to be judged. And Jesus Christ is facing that. It is his nature to be in perfect, unbroken, united, indwelling love with the Father. And now as he takes upon his sin, he's going to have to undergo the nightmare of all nightmares. Consider it. The Bible says that God made him to be the propitiation for our sins. The word propitiation means mercy seat. In the Old Testament, it was the blood of bulls and goats that was on that mercy seat, and now the Father is going to put His own Son there, and the Son's going to make Himself the object of God's wrath. And why would He do that? Why did He do that? The Bible says, For the joy that was set before Him, He endured the suffering of the cross. The joy is fellowship with you and with me. He was willing to undergo that for you and for me. That's the passion of the Son. And that's the passion of the, Spirit, uh, of the Father. And then when we understand that the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit's always, throughout Scripture, sort of the, the, the behind-the-scenes member of the Godhead. He's the, he's the secret agent of the Godhead. He's the make-it-happen person of the Godhead. He's always working behind the scenes to make it happen. The Bible says that Jesus, through, in, in Hebrews 9.27, Jesus offered up himself through the eternal Spirit. The Holy Spirit was behind the scenes, providentially orchestrating the whole thing, sustaining Jesus, directing things to make all this happen. And when we understand that the, how the whole Godhead was working out a plan that the Godhead, the Trinity made for our redemption, you can begin to appreciate more profoundly what that, art, that, what that mercy seat in the Old Testament was symbolizing. We see here the heart of God, symbolizing these two cherub facing downward, looking at the mercy seat. The love, the infinitely intense love of God circles around the mercy seat. The triune God centers on it and the triune God is covered by it. It all revolves around the work of Jesus Christ. The love of God is here turned outward. In fact, this is right here. God, get this. High overflow room, you get this too. You know what? This is right here. This is the, the most profound, I believe the most profound, stupendous, glorious, beautiful mystery in the entire word of God. It's too beautiful for any human being ever to have even thought about making up. And it's just this. When Jesus Christ on the cross cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We are there seeing the, the intensity of God's own love revealed to us. Because all of it is occurring through God's love. In other words, this is where it gets really thick here. Hang with me. Just when Jesus Christ is on one level experiencing separation from God, you are seeing revealed the unity of God because God's unity is love and you're seeing love expressed here like it's never been expressed before. This is the infinite intense intensity of God's love being expressed outward. Just when Jesus Christ is, is suffering rejection from the Father, you're seeing the acceptance of the Father. Just when Jesus Christ is being cursed, you're seeing the blessedness of the Trinity. Just when it looks like there's disunity, at a deeper level, you're having the unity of the Godhead being poured out, and that was God's plan all along. How can we reveal to them something about us? And this was the plan they hit on. The infinite intensity of God's own love turns into an infinite curse which expresses God's infinite love. Praise God. No one can make that up. It's too beautiful. And the purpose for the whole thing is to show love towards us, to reveal love towards us, and to say, now, whosoever will, come. Whosoever will, come. In fact, to complete the whole thing, last word I'm going to say here, sort of. Here's the cherubim. Here's the mercy seat. When you, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, the whole thing centers on the mercy seat. You are now put in the mercy seat. 
You are covered by the mercy seat. And now God's love, as it, as it centers on the Son, His work of redemption, now centers on you. God, in His triune being, envelops you. Father, I pray that they may be one in us, even as we are one. Put under the mercy seat, the, the love of God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, comes and circles around us.